Welcome to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chung, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM, like a broken record magically repaired. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM, or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about our guests as you're listening to the show. And we started with uh, music by Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse. Uh, The song was Dark Night of the Soul featuring David Lynch. Our guests today on The People are Allison Carter and Alexandra Grant. Alison Carter is the author of A Fixed Formal Arrangement from Lafigue Press and Here Versus Elsewhere, forthcoming from Insert Blanc Press, as well as several shorter collections, including Some Total from Eohippus Labs, All Bodies Are the Same and Have the Same Reactions from Insert Blanc Press Parrot Series, Shatters Are Weather, Horseless Press, and We All Are Worried About Repeating Mistakes That I Have Already Made, Breakfast Poems, forthcoming from Dancing Girl Press. Alexandra Grant is a text-based artist who uses language and networks of words as the basis for her work in painting, drawing, and sculpture. She's been shown at the Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles, the Contemporary Museum in Baltimore, and many other galleries in the U.S. and abroad. She currently has an installation at USC's Fisher Museum entitled Century of the South. Allison Carter and Alexandra Grant, welcome to the people. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Absolutely. So we're going to start with Allison. I think, Allison, what do you have for us? Um, well, I was actually hoping that we could start out by doing a, a small writing exercise. Um, That's great. What I was hoping was that I could lead an exercise that you three could participate. Um, and I'm also hoping that those of you listening at home could participate. So let's maybe take a second so you can grab a, a piece of paper and a pen. I know that for everybody here, there's, there's paper and pen on the table. I love that our radio show requires paper and pen. It does. This is an interactive radio yeah, show. Yeah, we'll maybe play a little music you. while people get paper and pen. So, Allison, we're here in the studio, we're ready for you. Yeah, go. Are you, are you ready? Oh, we yeah, ready. we're ready. Yeah. Okay. So, I just I want to make very clear before we start that this is about developing a world, thinking thinking of an image. So... If you don't go all the way into sentences, all the way into complete phrases, that is okay with this. Um, it's important that you see it. So we're going to start by imagining two doors. And we're going to take a second to describe those two doors. Um, are they different from each other? What do they look like? Do they have a color? Do the doors have a shape? Do they have a texture? Are the doors clean? Is one familiar? Is one strange? Is one of the doors heavy? Is one of the doors light? Anything you can know about these doors by being in the space with them. So we're going to take a minute to really imagine these doors. And let me know when you have two doors that you can see. I'm ready for you. Thank you, Alexandra. I'm close. Thank you, Ben. If you're lost, you can remember to ask a couple of questions. Do these doors have sounds? Do you have feelings about these doors? Do you love one of these doors? Is there something you cannot know 
about one of these doors. Is everybody ready? I'm good. Yeah. All right. So at this juncture, I'm going to ask you to make a choice. We're going to choose one of these doors. It might be that one of these doors draws you to it. Maybe one of these doors repels you. Maybe they both repel you and you have to force yourself through one of them. But we're going to choose one and we're going to take a minute to describe opening it. This is a slow process. There's a lot you're going to find out about opening this door. Maybe you walk towards it. Maybe there's something that your feet are on when you walk towards it. Maybe the door opens when you try to open it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe the door shrinks. Maybe you speed up. Maybe the door slows down. Maybe you're breathing. Maybe the door is breathing. You have to know if there's a, a handle that you go for or a latch or a slide, and can you find it when you reach for it? And does it feel like anything in your hand when you get there? When your hand is there, are you walking through it because it's inviting you through it, or are you forcing yourself in on the space? And what happens when you're in the door frame? Can you move the rest of the way through it, or you get caught there? Or do you walk back out again and change your mind? So we'll take another second with this. And if you're lost, you can remember the little things that maybe you forgot. Was there a noise? Did it squeak? Was there a strange temperature on the other side of the door that gets emitted at you when it opens? Was there a light? Was there a color? And when do you let go of the door? So you can take as much time as you want getting through the door. You can stay in the door for the rest of this. But if you've moved through the door and you're on the other side, we're gonna take a minute and see what's there. Do you know where to go when you're on the other side? Is there something in this space that brings you to it? Anything in this space that tells you to go the other way? Does the door close behind you? Is this a space you're going to be in forever? You might ask yourself what happens to the door when you turn your back on it. And so wherever you are with this, we're going to stop. So you might have to sacrifice a little bit of the future of this space. Just remember it's something you can come back to later if you need to. So the people, let me know when you're ready. I'm ready. Ben's ready. I'm ready as well. Alexandra's ready. Absolutely. So I was hoping that we might be able to bring the conversation to a beginning by sharing a little bit or all of what, what you have describing the spaces that you that you chose to move through. Would anyone like to begin? I tend to take notes. Mm -hmm. So this bleeds from notes into into uh, kind of describing the space that you, you know you were leading us into or helping to lead us into. So developing a world, imagine two doors. Uh, are they different? A rectangle of old wood creaking slightly on its hinges bathed in sunshine. A welcome to you. Clean steel and metal, no streaks, frosted glass, well-lit, backlit, opens easily with a swoosh sound. I love both these doors. Choose one door. Opening the steel and glass door, it has a lever-like handle. It doesn't open initially. I knock and wait. Outside, there is cement and more steel walls. It is cold, but in a crisp, welcoming, fresh manner. The door opens by an acquaintance, someone I greet happily excited to meet. This person 
This is their house. The swoosh of the door covers our own hello, and the door stays open of its own accord. This is modern, organized, clean space, and I'm, I'm asked inside right away. I'm not sure where I am. This is the lowest level of a Los Angeles house, modernist box carved into a hillside. I come in, and my companion closes the door. It swings back quickly, again with a swoosh, and pauses then slightly before latching shut behind me. Beautiful. So I want to hear all of these, and then maybe we can talk about the moments where we came together. Yeah. I took a lot of notes or wrote a lot of things, but I think the important things are the things that, like, really jumped out at me, like visualizing the doors or the, is that they were too sort of fresh off the Home Depot rack, mm. uh, you know, door blanks with no holes or handles or, or anything and a clean, like a clean matte crimson and a clean matte black or like a deep blue black, like a Payne's gray sort of color. Uh, and the other thing that was like a, a thing that was that I visualized really easily or or intensely was opening them and them opening in a way where there's a difference of air pressure between the two rooms, you know, where it's, it's a hot room or a cold room or outside or inside or whatever, where once the once the latch undoes, it kind of pulls itself, right? So it pulls itself open fairly easily, not slamming open like say a garage door or whatever, but you know, just easily opens on its own. Uh, and I had some other stuff, but those are the things that were the strong visuals to me. Wonderful. Alexandra? So my two doors were twins. They were white, flat, clean. They were foreign. They were made of light. They only opened when you are ready. There's no knob, so there's no physical anything. And it reminded me... Well, the thing I wrote here is these doors aren't meant to open. Hmm. And so it reminded me of this amazing poem by Kavafi called Ithaca. Have you ever heard it? I no. So bear with me. It's a bit long, but I think you'll see what I mean. As you set out for Ithaca, hope the voyage is a long one, full of adventure, full of discovery, Lystragonians and Cyclops, angry Poseidon, don't be afraid of them. You'll never find things like that on your way, as long as you keep your thoughts raised high, as long as a rare excitement stirs your spirit and your body. Lestringonians and Cyclops, wild Poseidon, you won't encounter them unless you bring them along inside your soul, unless your soul sets them up in front of you. Hope the voyage is a long one. May there be many a summer morning when, with what pleasure, what joy, you come into harbor seen for the first time. May you stop at Phoenician trading stations to buy fine things, mother of pearl and coral, amber and ebony, sensual perfume of every kind, as many sensual perfumes as you can. And may you visit many Egyptian cities to gather stores of knowledge from their scholars. Keep Ithaca always in your mind. Arriving there is what you are destined for, but do not hurry the journey at all. Better if it lasts for years, so you are old by the time you reach the island, wealthy with all you have gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to make you rich. Ithaca gave you the marvelous journey. Without her, you would not have set out. She has nothing to give you now. 
And if you find her poor, Ithaca won't have fooled you. Wise as you will have become, so full of experience, you will have understood by then what these Ithacas mean. I think that that poem is an amazing way to think about sort of this process of, of having to make, to make choices, right, when you're making art. And there's this question in a, in a writing process like this where you've developed a couple of places where you can go and you have to choose one of them to move forward. But maybe somehow in extending that moment of choice, there becomes a lot of potential. Um, at least that's what I think of when I hear that poem, the sense that Ithaca might be the choice that you make, but ultimately it's that, that space between, between going to Ithaca and getting to Ithaca where, where it happens, where anything happens. What I love about Ithaca and the poem is that it really symbolizes that as a creative person, your relationship to something idealized, whether mm -hmm. it's a door or a place, is always asymptotic, and that you're always reaching for it, but actually never getting there is this beautiful thing. And, and this poet in particular wrote uh, about 100 years ago, and he was gay at a time where being Greek and being gay was absolutely unacceptable, and he had a day job, I think, as an accountant or something that involved office work. And so he had a huge secret life. And, you know, again, probably wasn't recognized as a poet within his own lifetime, but had this idea of what dream symbols mean, mm -hmm. you know? And so when you were talking about doors, what occurred to me was this idea of like, what does it mean to reach or yearn for something? What, does, what do symbols mean? And do, does achieving them, does reaching them, you know, for me at least, the doors, became that thing where is it the opening that's important or was it just holding them dear yeah and I noticed <coughs> that in in your work you, you don't open them you don't open them you let them to you let them you let them be you let them sort of shimmer I guess in place and and grow a little bit um but then there's something sort of strangely similar that happens with with these other places where maybe the doors are opened, but there's still, there's still no, there's still no arriving that happens. There's still sort of a, a constant moving through and maybe the door once passed through becomes a wall and another door sort of comes out next. So I don't know, I guess I just wonder where that, where that process of going through ends up ending. And in your writing, Allison, like, uh, say, and I think some total, the Eohippus Labs book might actually be a great example of this, is it's the kind of story of that is that there's, like, a dinner party. Um, it's an experimental prose piece uh, where you're setting up these various kind of, you know, things about the dinner party, but that was, a like, a really great book of yours that I was, so, I mean, I was so happy that that like that existed in the world um maybe wow. you can tell us a little bit about it too it's it's like a wonderful circular kind of it's it, it is a thing that is always arriving but never i feel like it's never it doesn't really like have then like the dinner party like we don't really see the dinner party we do, we or do we we see we see the tiniest bit of the dinner party right okay which is the the narrator trying to 
trying to engage in, in real interactions with the other people around her. And it ends up being a sort of diagrammatic thing where she ends up not categorizing, but only being able to whittle down the interactions to the, to the, the concept of the interactions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that that question of um, asymptotically approaching something that might be solid is really curious. And I think that that in that, in that particular piece in some total, there's a, there's a narrator who seems to, who seems to crave that and who seems to sort of spiral maybe towards something solid towards a, a causal piece that might've brought her into the, into the place where she finds herself where there is nothing solid, I guess. Yeah. It seems like a kind of a, an anxiety about and an excitement to get to this, you know, this moment. But mm-hmm. a lot of that book uh, is also about, like, the expectation. The dinner party becomes, like, uh, you know, not even necessary that much to the story. It's about the expectations and, you know, setting up and being ready, you know, readying a space, making sure that, I mean, I think there's, like, cleaning the kitchen or there's, you know, I read this when it came out. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, exactly. There's this sort of, and I think that this happens a lot in my, in my writing where, where you manufacture an event to be a kind of a linchpin of a story Mm -hmm. so that something can move towards something else like in Ithaca, because there has to be movement in Mm -hmm. order for a story to happen. But ultimately I think that my characters tend to feel that whatever that thing is, isn't sufficient and that that's maybe where some of the anxiety comes from and where some of that swimming feeling comes from, that there's a, a movement, but no belief that it will land, even yeah. though there are structurally, it seems like potentially it might. Because I feel like uh, to, you know, further the linchpin thing, there's also like, there's a linchpin and there's a hinge, I feel like, in your work. Like, comographs, I feel like, uh, are the pieces in a fixed formal arrangement they're always like swinging on something, mm-hmm. but similarly, you don't you don't actually see that if it was a door, mm-hmm. you don't actually see the door opening or the door actually closing. You just see the swing, which is great. I mean, how would you, uh, with some total we were talking we're talking about a uh, uh, experimental fiction piece. There's there's a character like of necessity, you know, but in in say uh, the garage pieces in a fixed formal arrangement, which are more experimental prose, but then uh, in your book here versus elsewhere, or uh, all bodies are the same, they're poems. And I feel like you, more than anyone, have like characters in the poems. There is the voice of the poet, but oftentimes there's like characters in the poems, and it's not narrative poetry in the sense that anyone would talk about your poems as necessarily narrative poetry. But tell me a little bit about like those that there are characters, I mean, you have ghost poems in uh, Here Versus Elsewhere, and, uh, you know, there's actual ghosts. You name them. Tell me about, like, putting, like, I feel like you're playing this kind of uh, interesting game of experimental prose writing, but when you are working in poetry, it's almost like you have, I don't know, do you have more possibilities? or? Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, something that happens in poetry with the, Again, I, I think of myself as always working in narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I tell people conversationally that I'm a poet because it's a shorter answer. Um, yeah. And if I say that I write narrative, people generally ask me what kind of novel I'm working on, and I'm not, <laughs> so I don't answer that way. Um, but I do think of myself as always always working in narrative, but I think that the the shorter line, the, the line of poetry allows for allows for those moments of breakage where, yes, we're, we're moving towards something. There's an arc that's happening and there's something solid that's going to be moving us towards it. But with poetry, there's, there's, there's built-in space for where that doesn't work. Um, and the language can sort of push those little malfunctions a little bit further. Um, but I do, I do like having that grounding that grounding element of the character, mm -hmm. of the thing that's moving through. Um, I think because it's very important to me to have an actual world. Um, and I think it's really difficult to move through a world without something that's actually doing the moving. And, and then on that, on that subject, um, in your, in your like collections, I feel like when you're collecting like a, a number of poems into a book, it's almost like you're putting like really diaphanous brackets around this world that is in that book. And it's though sometimes that, that world like resonates off to off of a different collection of work you're doing. It always seems like there's this slightly permeable, but boundary, yeah. like an actual boundary, like, and it's, it's the, the cover of the book, of course, but it's also like this imaginative space. It's also rules. It's rules. Yeah. And I think that, Without rules, you have sort of this, you have an endless space, and there's, there's no way to differentiate between what you're working on and what, what you're not working on, really. Mm. Um, so I think with everything I do, there are rules, and that rule might be coming back to a certain element over and over and over again because it's the thing that is solid and the thing that's secure. Um, or it might be a structural rule, but there's always a rule that allows that it could be broken, but also enables the space to exist sort of unto itself. Mm -hmm. As an artist, I often get asked if I'm an abstract or a representational mm -hmm. artist, and I always say both. Because working with language, I'm both, both representing and being abstract. And as I listen to you talk, I think that you might answer the exact same way. Yeah. Do you think about abstraction and representation in your work? I do, Alexandra. I think about that. And I think that it it comes back to sort of what we were talking about, about, and we'll see if this is similar to you, but how the closer you move to something, the more it changes. Um, so language is by nature representational. It's You have a word, you refer to a thing, there's a representation happening. But you use all of these word things to move on on something that's a little bit more complicated. And that thing starts to disappear a little bit. And I don't know, I feel like we see that in your work also, where there's, there's not as much language. But because there's not as much, it looks like it should be pinning something. It looks like it should be representing something, sort of making a clear statement. But really, the closer you get to it, and the more you look at it, the more that statement disappears a little bit. So there's the abstraction and that disappearance, but the representation and that gesture towards meaning and that gesture towards we're saying something, the invitation to understand. 
Well, I, I, I do love that about your work as well. I mean, it's funny. One sometimes uh, reads poetry and uh, feels like one needs to be educated in order to continue. <laughs> uh, one has missed some key and password. And when reading you, one is invited with such dulcet... Um, let me rethink about how I'm going to say this. One is invited in. I liked the dulcet. I mean, me think of no, no. There, there, there is a dulcet, but then what follows that word? I don't know. One is invited in, and dot dot dot. There is not a sense of superiority in your writing, but there is a sense of difference, and that is what's so appealing about it. That so often there is so much insecurity in poetry that one has to be smarter than the reader, or position oneself vis-a-vis the reader as being complex. And, and I hate to make this comparison, but I feel like you're the feminine, you're a very feminine Seidel. Seidel, how do you say him? He's the jerk, macho old dude from New York who writes about motorcycles and sleeping with younger women. But it's so wonderful because he's fully unfamiliar with fantastic. <laughs> well, do you know? But what's wonderful about him is that he's honest, and there's something you know. There's such a disdain in academic poetry for the authentic, for the real. That you know, just and what you are able to do is you invite us. Your invitation is dulcet. You invite us to come with you, and then you shift things by not too many degrees. They're, they're, they're the things that are all familiar to us. Uh, you write about love more than anything. I do write about love. You write about love a lot. But it, it's wonderful. And I, and I think that what I really respond to in your work is that you care. And you're not engaged in double negative, quadruple negative, multiple negative games with the reader. You really are... Let's do the Eames's power of ten down, 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 down. Let's let's break it up into the nuances, which make something very small different than something else. That's right. You pixelate things, and you care about your pixels, which are your words. And it's so um, dulcet because it's not romantic. You are not a romantic, and that's why I keep coming back to this word. You care and your emotion is warm, your palate is warm, you like other people, although you may be antisocial, right? <laughs> and it is so sexy in a palate that is not harsh. It's an a intimate palette of words, and I'm so happy to read you. It's just so lovely, everything that you're saying right now. I'm, you can't see me, listeners of the people, but I'm actually blushing. She's very flattered. I'm um, very flattered over here. But if you want to get out of being flattered, do you want to, do you want to read something for us? I do want to read something. Um, I also want to say just really quickly that that's why I wanted to start with a writing exercise is that I do think that there's something really important about reaching out and about having there be some sort of an interaction and some sort of a caring. And um, Will you read us a poem? I'll read you a poem. That's what you're here for. About love. Keep it simple. <laughs> Keep it right. Kiss. I'm going to read something from Here Versus Elsewhere, which is going to be forthcoming from Insert Blanc Press. 
This poem is called Runaway. For months we sat around. Isabel was smaller than me. And another floor under the floor, one day she fell through it. I said, Isabel, you can come back in if you want to. All bodies in this house remain the same. Years go by. You hurt, pull down your pants, and you go. I remain in the living room and dig a new entry called the sun window. The world occurs both above and below sea level. Still, no one comes back, not Isabel. And I buy ivy, light bulbs, a barking dog, a ringing phone, eggs, glass, a new room. Did I make her feel loose and unsafe? Did I make her feel the cement of time until suddenly she went out of the house in search of news to break? I grow new cataracts, halt. I give the tax without spit. I go out once. I went home and entered the other room, glass. She was not in the room either. I learned things that I am a cancer like the raunchy spirit of the skin of the sun. Oh, I think, once she was at the nipple every day. There are rules for going or making go. And then the zeitgeist, we became strictly inseparable, or so I thought, and I can't understand. Where could she go after she and I we were the only people we saw of each other. Welcome back to The People on Kaichung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about the show. Our guests today are Allison Carter and Alexander Grant. Alexandra, thanks for being on the show. I'm delighted. And I think we're going to start with uh, uh, playing an excerpt from an interview you did with Hélène Sixou. Let's go ahead and do that. The first time I heard the text, I heard it because you read it out loud. Mm-hmm. It wasn't yet published in French, in French mm-hmm. at the Maison Henri Henry Hein. Henry Hein, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and this beautiful building with the, the gorgeous deciduous trees outside. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, during the conference sort of listening and as one does, letting one's eyes ramble while one listens. And uh, I remember hearing the texts and then the, the gift that you gave of an advanced copy with even your notes, your handwriting mm-hmm. on it. And having this wonderful sense of responsibility towards it, but also 
the, the other level of confidence that you had in me, where you said, I, I want you to make work about telepathy. And I had this moment where I think I couldn't even conceal, it wasn't fear, but it was just the sense that, Helen, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it, it was t tied a little bit to responsibility, but also the sense that I wanted to understand what it was. Mm. And but I knew you could, because, uh, because you, um, your work is in a, an alliance <clears throat> between uh, matter, um, form, um, visual art, and text, uh, which exchange perpetually. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what happens with Philippines, the other way around, that is, mm -hmm. it's text uh, that uh, uh, grows trees, and uh, trees of text, etc. No, and then the almond becomes the mandorla of Ceylon, it becomes mm. the mandorla of history, it becomes... But the, of course this is archaic, you know, yeah. otherwise you wouldn't have so many poems and uh, yeah. artists and writers who react in the same way yeah. at those kernels. Yeah. <coughs> yes. And as I, 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 as I struggle to understand what what does it mean as an artist to be in relation to those kernels, mm. you know, to to follow the signs that are uh, in a path that's an intuitive path, that have always been there before mm. there mm. was a swa, before there mm. was a self or mm. a sense of self. Mm. Um, you gave me the other gift of saying, well, have you considered that telepathy is a step further than empathy? Uh, of course you have empathy to have telepathy. <laughs> But then you have to send the message. Yes. Mm -hmm. empathy, I mean, telepathy is empathy sent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a letter. Mm -hmm. mm. And uh, and this letter uh, travels and uh, and uh, reaches a number of um, um, addressees who receive something exactly as you received it, you you think, but is it for me, or what is, what is that? And I'm not sure I understand. And in which language is it written, and it works. I, I, I just adore that idea, is that we do get messages, and we, and we don't know where they're coming from, who they're coming from, are we ready to receive mm -hmm. them? Uh, what do they mean? Are they intended for mm -hmm. us? And how do we have a recognition? And eventually, you know, they have basic messages which are vital to to all of us. Yeah. It is how to, they have to do with life and death and uh, and uh, evasion, how to free oneself. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, all artists are uh, determined by. Mm -hmm. Before we go on, Alexandra, I would like you to maybe tell us, for especially for people who don't know. Uh, her work very well, or that specific book very well. If you could sort of give us give us in broad strokes, kind of what Sixu is all about, and and how you got to know her, and how you got into a situation where you were having a conversation with her. Um, Helen Sixu, for me, arrived as a as a book, not a human being, and um, it was an unlikely story of how I encountered her work. I, I was looking for art schools as one does 
as a young artist who wants to go to art school. And I went to the Royal College of Art, and they told me uh, in London, wait, there's another American here. And out they trotted a wonderful man named Jeffrey Gibson, who was taller than me, and as you know, sitting in this room, that I'm quite tall, and um, a Native American, uh, an extraordinary artist. And he said to me, sitting having a pint in the student bar, you must read Sixu. And I said, who? I, I don't know her work, because we were talking about our work. And I didn't end up applying to the Royal College of Art or going there, um, but I did have this voice of Jeffrey Gibson in my head that I must read this writer. And I had the opportunity to do so and uh, a few months later. And what's amazing about Helen is that she is a, comes from a German-Jewish background. Um, her parents left Germany before things got impossible to survive. Uh, and she was brought up in Oran in Algeria, and so she was a, a person in a way, a, a privileged person, but a paperless person, or too much paper, and that she didn't have citizenship anywhere, really. And uh, so she was brought up in a, in a French colony, having escaped Nazism, uh, her parents, uh, and went to university in France. And when she arrived in France, she didn't have French papers. She was uh, an exile in North Africa, but grew up with all the sounds and smells and street names and, and, and flowers and foods of Algeria. And so at 19 was knocking at the door of France with all this background, which is a very similar background to Jacques Derrida, the philosopher, but they didn't know each other as young people. Uh, she wrote a, a, an incredible PhD uh, on English literature, actually. And in 1968, she was given the responsibility of founding Paris 8, which was the university where Deleuze and Guattari, Foucault and Derrida, as well as Helene Sixou taught. So she helped organize the post-revolution of 68 academic world. Uh, she founded the first women's studies program in all of Europe. Um, I mean, I could just go on. When, when Lacan was going blind, she read him the, Odyssey, the Odyssey by James Joyce. She's someone whose connections to people, to great thinkers, including herself, were real. She was surrounded by people who admired and respected her. But to me, what's so extraordinary about her is that she's been writing, she's about 76 now. She's always written since she was a young woman. And she's written philosophy. She's written uh, novels, um, reviews. But she also writes theater. And she has a 25-plus year long collaboration with Théâtre du Soleil, which is a... To say we have such limited language in English, really, we have the word activist. So you would say that Théâtre du Soleil is an activist theater. Well. They're not, they're a truth-telling theater about histories of colonial impact, like about the Khmer Rouge. There's a play right now going on in Paris about um, the king of Cambodia and the whole history of Cambodia, which would not be allowed to be played in Cambodia because the man who leads that country today is a Khmer. Um, so she's an extraordinary person. We talk about interdisciplinary work, and I look at all of you, and you know how impossible interdisciplinary 
it, it, people love to sell things, uh, saying it's interdisciplinary, but the reality of that is 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 quite uh, it's it's not real. It's so difficult to truly be interdisciplinary. But here is a woman who can do everything she does, which is analyze psychoanalysis. She's a, a, a true philosopher. She's a, a novelist. She's a feminist. But she's not limited to any of those one things. And 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 to me, when she wrote from this position of uh, being a woman and being north south being uh, religious uh, and m moving between countries in terms of her religion, I, I thought that I had finally found my place, that someone who I lived in her in the same world as this human being. And it gave me permission to be as, um, it, well, it just gave another role model. And I think that we all suffer, those of us with m not multiple identities in a negative sense or in an indecided sense, but a true sense that we were brought up with so many hyphens, who we truly are, that she gives permission, uh, you know, within the academic world, you know, that she's trying to bust up academic language, poetic language, uh, uh, and, and I found a hero more than anything. And so you asked how I met her. Well, I met her by being a fan. Um, and I met her by falling in love with her through her writing. And uh, my long-term collaborator, Michael Joyce, when I finally sat down with him in person, he said, you are Sixusian in the way you talk. And I, and I was so flattered. Uh, and he said, you know that she wrote the afterword to one of my books. And the way that I met Michael was through Google. Uh, in a very random way, I Googled the word domesticity and landed in one of his hypertexts. So there was never a pursuit of who Michael Joyce was or who Helen was. It was this, the things that you trust at the end of the day aren't ambitious, it's what you love. Uh, ambition is a certain kind of energy, but it's not the one that really drives any creative practice. It, the creative practice is driven by the things that you truly love when you don't know what they are. And I truly loved Helen's writing when I didn't know what it is or was, and still probably will never know. Um, and I loved that about Michael's work as well, and the fact that they knew each other. That was the introduction uh, through Michael to Helen. And uh, I, I always, when we first met, I was really struck by the fact that I was unlike other people in the community around her. And I was a painter, I was American, I had these, mm. I wanted to be hands-on, uh, but I was so certain in my heart but the reason I was there was a, the real reason to be there, which is that I cared deeply about the same things. And over time, that became the basis for a, a real exchange. So uh, a story I've told many times, uh, she wanted to collaborate. I had sort of, we'd gotten, we'd visited every year more out of love than anything, and she said, I want to collaborate with you, but there are many artists that I want to work with and need to work with who are going to die, who are quite aged, and so, age uh, in French, and, uh, and you are very young. So it wasn't that I, you know, it's not that I don't want to work with you, basically, but, and she worked with Nancy Spiro and Simon Antai, and when she gave me Philippines, um, her, her, close friend Jacques Derrida had just died, and this book really 
Now that I've drawn it publicly twice and I've heard it read in English and French and really listened to the text, I understand that it's a love letter. And so she entrusted me with a love letter to, not to just to Jacques, but to all the ideas that they shared. Well, she said to me, I want you to make uh, an artwork about telepathy. And of course, I didn't understand what that meant. And because I'm not a philosopher, because I hadn't read Freud's hidden texts about telepathy, I didn't understand that the book actually was a revelation about Freud. That Freud wrote all these texts that were repressed because people didn't want psychology as a science to be thought to be a mystical cult. So his texts were hidden, and then it was Jacques Derrida who really uncovered them and began looking at those notes, and whether Freud believed in them or not. And so what's interesting, when she challenged me to make work about telepathy, she was talking about the real thing, which is, how are we connected? What does it mean to be in the same emotional state as another person without taking their place, without being... And then what does this history of connection mean in terms of looking at psychoanalysis for the last hundred years and how that has affected uh, philosophy and all these questions? And so back to our audience for a second. Yes, this is, uh, I'm a painter. Like we're talking about painting. And what's always been interesting to me is to use painting as a, as a platform to do the research that I'm interested in doing. Uh, that I, I think there's a certain politics of freedom that artists are allowed. And artists, I will extend that to writers, to people who are acting as artists in any creative form, that, that sometimes academics aren't allowed. So the kind of research that I'm interested in, the kind of uh, relationships that might be, you know, uh, my sister's an academic, and she's talking about there's a whole new wave in uh, history and in other social sciences where the first person, I, the I, is allowed to write texts for the first time. But that seems so strange. I mean, that's what artists and writers have been allowed to do and doing for a long time. But there's a freedom of research and interest. And it's not just a kind of obsession. It's really, how do we think about these issues without a kind of responsibility that would drag us down and away from thinking about an inheritance, you know, uh, of philosophy of plastic forms. And she says this in the quote where she says, what's interesting about how you tie things together as an artist is that you move between the plastic things, the material things, the ideas, and that's, to me, a more holistic view of how the intellect and the imagination, how creativity really works, is that it's not isolated, you know, as just sort of a mental exercise or, you know, a, a abstraction, that there's this connection between, you know, uh, our ideas have real impacts in the physical world and how do we as, and this is how we, our bridges, right? between an abstract world of thought and a, and a world of doing. And for me, what her role modeling does is that she always connects, and it's very consistent, the work of the theater, 
the work of the teacher and the holder of seminars, the person in the real world, and then the, the writer isolated. Well, we have a writer here, and it would be interesting for me to hear you guys, and we don't have a ton of time left, but it would be interesting for me, I think people listening to this, for you guys to talk about those different responsibilities that are real or perceived, but that writers have or artists have, or, or you know, that, that, are, that those two disciplines are perceived to have. Well, I, you know, I, I think that one of the things that, you know, that was always really interesting to me about you and that drew me to you is that your work has that sense of, of responsibility towards, towards being heard and towards taking up space and towards being interactual in a particular way. And I guess the question that I kept thinking about while you were talking about Siksu's work is this question of having permission. And I feel like what makes your work so alive is that it already takes permission. There's already been a, a taking of permission to, to take up space, to take up color, to take up size, to be conversational in that way. And I'd be interested to hear how that changed or maybe magnified or, or grew sort of working, working with this project with the intention of maybe revisiting this question of, of what is your freedom and what is the permission that you have and that you've given yourself? I, I appreciate that question because my imaginary first question to you is going to be the same thing, which is what gave you permission mm -hmm. to write in the way you do? You know, uh, the idea of freedom and permission, one comes into life... Uh, with the possibility of jobs, you know, you think, uh, you know, I worked at a place in high school called the Monkey Bar in Faneuil Hall in Boston, and I would, I figured out I could barter blended fruit drinks for pizza. Did it work? Yeah, absolutely. And then my hands, <laughs> my my fingers, that my fingertips all dissolved because I cut fruit for a whole summer. And even if I wore, you know, seven pairs of gloves, and. This idea that one can do, you know, uh, something other than labor or work for someone else or imagine something that doesn't exist mm. uh, is, is so important. And when I was a younger person, I, I thought that I would work for an institution that already existed. I really did. And then I realized that the only institution that might be involved jackets. <laughs> With small belts in the back. No, I, but, but this notion that, that you have somehow when you're younger that, you know, artists, there were very creative people in my family, but not necessarily artists and the idea, and, and, not, and they were entrepreneurs, but they were a generation. My, both my parents were academics. And so I didn't really know the entrepreneurs in my family. Um, but when this moment where you realize, and it's, it's, it's the permission of Siksu, but it's also the permission of an entrepreneur, which is you could invent something, a space that doesn't exist right now for yourself, uh, you know, it was a moment, I mean, I always knew that I didn't quite fit in to things and that I didn't, you know, the idea of being my own boss, I mean, all these sort of American terms. Um, but the notion that one can build something that doesn't exist and then you can, 
buy your own health insurance, that you have to take care of yourself as this other kind of entity. And so it's a responsibility to becoming one's own institution. Um, that was really uh, important to me. You know, another person who was incredibly influential was Kitai, who's a painter. There's a show at the LA Louvre right now. And the thing, of course, that he and Helene have in common is a, a sort of a, Jew, a thinking about Jewishness. And Kitai was a painter who decided that all painters were diasporists. So he positioned the painter as an outsider who could paint about literary themes, about themes of Jewishness, about not belonging. And it was really between the triangulation between these two thinkers that I became convinced that one could make a life around books and not necessarily as a writer. That one could position oneself, you know, in the same way that you described, that you're, you say poet because it's simpler, but in fact you're interested in new forms of narrative that are, this, they're skeletal, and I mean that in the sense that they're like the basic points, the fulcrums of all you need is this. Um, all you need is love, really. But <laughs> I, when I look at you, I think that, I'm sorry. But, uh, but that notion of what does it mean to have combinations that are marginal? And, you know, obviously thinking about uh, a certain perspective, a Jewish perspective, a painter's perspective, a North African, German, lesbian mom's perspective. What does this mean to constructing a worldview uh, that's whole, mm -hmm. right? That can comment, that can reinvent language, that values language more than the mainstream culture, that questions issues of, of a narrative that's so powerful in, in the dominant culture, but that's trying to lead us and to sell us things that we don't even want. Right. But I feel like thinking, like thinking about this idea of love, there's, there's marginalia that exists to, to celebrate the marginality of itself and then to, to draw others further into the margins and to sort of move away from the center. And there's a pleasure in that parting from the center. But I don't, I don't feel like that's what your work does. Um, I feel like your work draws maybe draws maybe from the edges, but that there's sort of a gathering in or a, a building that happens from it, a, a construction that happens of, again, just going back to this, this general feeling of, of, of color, of taking up space, of this idea that things that are marginal can also be important and deserve to be celebrated and that there's a, a conversation that happens with that. Um, so here's what I call it. You know, there are people who say they're conceptual artists, but I actually think they're artists who make conceptual art. Mm. And then there are people who are conceptual artists and don't care what it looks like. And I explained this to someone the other day. I said, I'm a conceptual artist who paints. Yeah. So and I really want to make the juxtaposition between a conceptual artist and an artist who makes conceptual art. Yeah. Because one is making an aesthetic, conceptual art, and one is a conceptual artist working with ideas and then letting 
the look will be something. And it's very threatening. So, yeah, yeah. you know, but there's... A, that's a very wonderful, and, and I feel very important distinction as well. Right. So there's a great book called Chromophobia. Have you ever read it? And it's about the fear of color in Western culture. And color as a signifier of marginalized cultures, third world cultures, homosexual cultures, uh, drag, everything. And I love color. And it is so threatening to people. Because black and white work signifies intelligence, didn't you know? Right, signifies. Yes, and so one of the things we live in an art world right now that privileges work that looks smart. Like I said, you know, like art that is conceptual looking, but is it truly conceptual or is it just sort of, you know, rubber, a rubber stamped aesthetic? And in that way, that's where, when I describe feeling marginal, it's, it's, it's well, not feeling marginal, but it's this idea of all these things that are sort of warm and accessible, a lot of artists try to be impenetrable or try to be codified. I mean, it is an economic system after all, almost yeah. more than an aesthetic and if system. And if you're like an easy bit to process through the system, right. that means that you get more bits in the form of dollars. and Right, so... Well, and I'm not like, against the market. None right. of us actually understand, you know, what There's I love... It's a pressure. It's a pressure to be easily codified so that right. you can... Right, So, yeah. but what's interesting is to love people publicly. You know, I truly love the people I work with and I admire them and I love what I do every day. Yeah. And it and and I think a lot about it. You know, I really care. And yeah. and uh I'm not starting out with a market goal yeah. or a look that I have. I mean, every writer, every text that I work with starts out as an idea. And then evolves into something. I mean, we, we were talking about the Interior Forest Project, mm -hmm. which came from Helen's text, and I wanted to find an economy of the project that equaled her text, which was how do I paint about telepathy and the perfect other? The perfect other? Who is that? Well, I'll send out an... What your solution was to invite... <laughs> well, was her, her sense right. was like... You, when, the first thing she said to me was that telepathy... Um, is one step further than empathy. It's empathy sent, but it's also that you send out an invitation and you don't know who will receive it. Who is the recipient of your, of your poem, of your text? You have no idea who your fans will be. And so you have to be open to these people uh, and, and then you're not superior to them because they're just the recipients of your message, that, that they're, you're in a relationship. So the idea of what if I create an artwork that's truly in the spirit of sent a message sent and received by someone unknown. And what would that artwork look like? I hate to be a downer, but we yeah. have to leave it on that question. Fantastic. Alexandra Grant and Allison Carter, thank you very much for being on The People. Thank you so much for having me. Mwah. You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. We'd like to thank our guests again, Allison Carter and Alexandra Grant, for joining us today. You can listen to the show every third Sunday at 3 p.m. on K-Chung, 1630 a.m., or the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The People is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more about the show. Thank you.